It was October 1976 on the train travelling north to Newcastle. Jonathan was about to begin university and he was faced with a big decision. Four years earlier he trusted Christ at boarding school but found living for Christ a real struggle, especially at home in the holidays where he had no like-minded friends and no church that taught the Bible. A gap year didn't help, the ways of the world began to take their grip. But Jonathan's conscience would not let him go. And now he was beginning university, he was faced with this decision. Was he going to walk with Christ? Or was he going to live for himself? It's November 2009. Our American lodger Diana had travelled to Geneva to meet up with her missionary parents and siblings for an American Thanksgiving holiday. She was just home when her father Clint rang to say he'd been refused entry back into Egypt where the family home had been for 33 years. His wife, Diana's mother, had been allowed in, but Clint had been put on the next plane out of Cairo. He needed somewhere to live at short notice, so he came to stay with us and slept on Diana's floor. What struck me about Clint was his calm in the midst of what must have been the most traumatic of life experiences. There was no panic, there was no resentment, there were no what-ifs. There was a quiet confidence that God was in control. And from day one in our home, he was not talking about the problems of the past. He was on the phone discussing with his colleagues where best in the Middle East he might now serve. At the stage of life he was, in his early 60s, you'd have thought, well, let's pack up, let's go back home to the US. But no, his passion for Christ for the gospel and for the Muslim world was what controlled him. He delighted in the Lord and in the work that God had given him to do. Now my question this morning is, how does a Jonathan become a Clint? How does a fledgling believer become mature, standing firm in the will of God, fully assured of their salvation, bearing fruit in their Christian lives? Well, I'm convinced that at least part of the answer lies in this letter of Paul to the Colossians. And as we look at this final chapter this morning, we'll review briefly some of the stuff that we've been learning from earlier chapters. Maturity in Christ, that's Paul's great desire for every believer. In chapter 1, verse 28, Paul writes, and do keep flicking back to various references, chapter 1, verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 2, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul wants them to stick close to Christ. And if we look back at chapter 1, verses 10 and following, we would see that he wants them to live their lives 
in a way that's worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. He wants them to understand that they have all that they need in Christ, that everything else is a shadow of the real thing. Christ alone will satisfy. Christ alone is worthy of our focus. Christ alone is worthy to live for and to die for. But how does this happen? How does the fledgling believer become mature like that? Well, I have three points from these verses. Prayer, proclamation and partnership. Firstly, prayer. Verse 2 of chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. There are two imperatives here. There's the more general, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and then there's the specific request that they pray for him in his proclamation of the gospel. Now, verse 2 suggests the kind of prayer which has the coming of God's kingdom in focus. Paul's urging watchfulness, which carries with it that sense of looking ahead for Christ's coming like the virgins with their lamps waiting for the bridegroom in Jesus' parable in Matthew 25. Their prayers should be focused on being ready for that day, on their growing in maturity, on becoming more Christ-like. Prayers like Paul's own in chapter 1, verses 9 and following. Now, there is a place for praying for our practical needs, for that job, for that sick relative. The Lord's Prayer, which we've just prayed, um, encourages prayer for our daily bread, for our daily needs. But the focus of that prayer, beginning and end, is on the kingdom of God, on kingdom concerns. And most of Paul's prayers do the same. Paul wants us to learn from his prayers That's why he writes them down for us, so that we know the kind of things that we should be praying for. So he wants us to pray for ourselves, uh, for brothers and sisters in other churches and in other parts of the world, for those kingdom concerns, those things that affect our growing maturity and fruitfulness in Christ. Sometime in the autumn of 1979, I had a sense that God was calling me to Christian service in South America. I rang my Aunt Grace, who was herself a missionary, to tell her the news that I was in contact with a mission agency that worked in Chile. That phone call to Auntie Grace, um, in response to what I told her, she told me a bit of her own story. In her early thirties, already a missionary in Lebanon, she had sensed God's call to pray for ten people that she knew to serve God in a cross-cultural context, in mission. The prayer in Matthew 9 about praying for labourers for the harvest fields. So she began daily to pray for those ten people. I was one of them, just a babe in arms. When I rang her that day, 25, 26 years later, she told me the story and she told me I was the tenth to answer that prayer and answer God's call to serve in a cross-cultural context. What a model to follow. Prayer that's focused on the kingdom of God, on the raising up of labourers who will take the gospel into all the world. 
and in the UK as well. We should constantly be praying for God to raise up people who will serve him in ministry, not just overseas, but at home, here in Magdalen Road. There are constantly needs for Sunday school teachers, for deacons, for people to help set up teams, to help with international student ministry. There are all sorts of needs. Let's be praying that God would raise up from our midst people who can serve in that way. Verse 2 says, devote yourself, implying constant, unwavering commitment to prayer. Catherine and I have been blessed by a number of people, family and friends, who've devoted themselves to praying daily. Not just for the ministry that we're involved with, but for our own growth in Christian maturity. And there are brothers and sisters here at Magdalen Road, I know, who faithfully pray for the church and its members daily. May God give them grace and strength to continue and may he give us grace and strength to follow their example. Praying for maturity uh, in believers. But kingdom-focused prayer will also be prayer for unbelievers as well, for specific friends, family, neighbours and colleagues. Our opportunities to speak for Christ in the workplace with our neighbours may be limited, but our opportunities to pray are constant. And if we're to see people come to Christ, we must pray. As we've heard again and again through this series in Colossians, the Christian life's all about Jesus, about his supremacy and his sufficiency. And seeing people come to put their faith in Christ is all about his work in their lives. And so Paul encourages us to pray that he would work in the lives of our unbelieving friends and family. About 14 years ago, I was introduced to a Chinese student and his wife who were beginning to ask questions about God. I offered to study the Bible with them, which they happily agreed to. So the first week, I went to visit them in their room with a prepared Bible study from one of the Gospels. When I got there, I discovered that they'd already read 70 chapters of the Bible, beginning at Genesis 1, and they had a whole host of questions. So we spent the time dealing with their questions. And this went on week after week after week. At the end of a year, they'd already read the whole Bible more than once and we'd covered all sorts of ground. I think they knew their Bibles better than most Christians. But they still weren't trusting Christ. I really started to pray. And at every opportunity, I asked other people to pray for them, those who who get our prayer letter, our church, our small group. Every time I was in a trance with other believers, I said, pray for these two. Well, another 12 months went past, still studying the Bible week after week, and eventually they put their trust in Christ. In chapter 4, verse 12, we read, Epaphras, who's one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Wrestling in prayer. Prayer is hard work. But if we want to see unbelievers put their trust in Christ and young believers become mature, then we must devote ourselves to prayer. But when we see the answers to prayer, as we did with that Chinese couple, then it's all worthwhile. 
the day they were baptised was one of the happiest days of my life. So how does a Jonathan become a Clint? Through the prayers of other Christians for him? Yes. But I think also by being in a church where prayer for gospel concerns and gospel growth are modelled. The prayers for him, but the prayers and the commitment that he sees modelled in the life of the church. And in verse 3, Paul asks for prayer for himself, a prayer that's, again, not focused on himself, on his needs, but on the proclamation of the gospel. So we come, secondly, to proclamation. Paul's asking for prayer that God would open a door for the message. There are several things we could say about this. Firstly, Paul's not primarily concerned about his own release from prison. He doesn't ask for prayer for an open door from the jail, though the reference to his chains may be a hint that that's what he wanted. But for Paul, his freedom, his comfort came second. His focus is on the gospel. He wants prayer for an open door. It's probably referring both to the provision of a context, an arena in which he can preach, and that in that arena God would open hearts and minds to hear and understand the message. Paul's convinced that it is the word of God which brings life, the word of God which brings transformation. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 5. He speaks there of the faith and love that spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth the gospel that's come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. It's the word of truth, the gospel, that brings that transformation. Then chapter 1, verse 25, I have become the servant of the church by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God, in its fullness, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. And then in chapter 1 verse 28 we see that maturity, perfection comes through the proclamation, the admonishing and teaching roles of the word of God. And we're reminded of Paul's words to Timothy in his second letter where he said all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. This gospel, this living word of God is the source of all life and growth. And so Paul seeks prayer that his proclamation would not fall on deaf ears. That as we heard earlier, the word of God would not return to him void. It would achieve what it's sent out for. He asked the Colossians to pray for people he can preach to and for hearts and minds that are open to hear. And he prays too for clarity. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul believes he's under obligation to be clear so that there can be no misunderstanding. I always remember the first talk I ever had to give in public. It was at a camp for teenagers and the leader of the camp would always ask first-time speakers to go through their talk with him the night before. 
Well, I went through my talk uh, with this man and he then looked at me and smiled and he said, Richard, what are you trying to say? I had to stay up all night rewriting it. But that was an important lesson. As a preacher of the gospel, I'm under obligation to make it clear. But we need prayer. Paul asked for prayer that he'd be able to make it clear. So let's pray for Peter and all those who preach here at Morden Road. Let's pray for our home group Bible studies and those who lead them. Let's pray for those called to be evangelists and missionaries. Let's pray that God would help them all and us to make the word of God clear. Without God at work, without his opening of doors and opening of hearts, no one will come to Christ or grow in maturity. Without his help, no one will preach fruitful sermons or lead profitable Bible studies. Without his Holy Spirit giving illumination, there'll be no clarity of communication, no transformation of lives. When the early church began and the apostles found themselves distracted by the church's social welfare programme, Luke tells us that they appointed deacons to look after those responsibilities while the apostles devoted themselves to the teaching of the word and to prayer. There was a recognition from the outset that Bible study and preaching was vitally important, but that it was not sufficient on its own for fruitful gospel ministry. Allied to that ministry of the word was the ministry of prayer, of devoted prayer. So let's be sure that we pray for God to open doors for the gospel and that our preachers and Bible study leaders would make it clear, as they should. But Paul's not just concerned about his own efforts to proclaim Christ. Communicating the gospel is not just the responsibility for the apostle. He urges all the the Colossians to ensure that their lives also commend the gospel and he focuses on their behaviour, their alertness to God-given opportunities and the content and quality of their speech. Verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Paul's spoken much about wisdom in this letter. He's critiqued the wisdom of false teachers that's all about show and esoteric experiences. Wisdom for Paul's all about knowing God's will, about walking worthily of the Lord day by day. It's essentially practical and realistic and its aim is to live lives which will give no cause to unbelievers for complaint or criticism. In Philippians, Paul asked his readers to become blameless and pure, shining like stars in the universe. The wonderful picture that our lives should be like stars, lighting up the night sky. And Paul goes on in verse 5 to encourage the making the most of every opportunity. Peter O'Brien in his commentary says the language here is the language of the marketplace, of a businessman seeking to buy up every opportunity, not to miss anything that will help him to make money. His livelihood is at stake, but the eternal destiny of unbelievers is at stake. And so Paul's urging the Colossians, make the most of every opportunity, don't let them slip. 
So let's be on the lookout for the opportunities that God gives us. And I'm not talking here just about giving a full ABC explanation of the Gospel. It's it's just simply things like refusing to engage in gossip, saying something positive about the person instead, about expressing gratefulness for all the good things we enjoy when all around us people are complaining, about being open and honest about what we did on Sunday when we're asked about our weekend. Which leads us on to verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. (coughs) Do you notice the always and the everyone? We're always on duty. Our conversation should always be gracious. In the shops, in the workplace, in the home, with our neighbours, wherever we are. To every individual to whom we speak and every individual about whom we speak. One elderly saint once said to us, never say anything about a person, about a person, that you would never happily say to them. There's so much we could say about our speech, about being gracious and kind, truthful and loving, and being courageous to say what needs to be said, including an appropriate testimony about our faith in Christ when that comes. Paul urges his readers to let their conversation be seasoned with salt. Conversation that brings colour and interest. Conversation that makes people sit up and think. But if there's one area of life where I feel I fail more than any other, it's this. In my conversation, saying the things that I shouldn't, not having courage to say the things that I should, and then always thinking of the most helpful thing to say half an hour too late. I suspect many of us are the same, and I doubt the Colossians were very different. I think, then it gets, I think it is significant that this section follows on so closely from Paul urging themselves to devo- devote themselves to prayer, just as the great evangelist needed their prayers so that he might speak as he ought, so too do we. So let's pray for ourselves as a church, for one another in our small groups, that verses 5 and 6 would be true of us. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. When I was a student, I was part of a small group of guys who'd all been involved uh, in those teenage camps that I referred to earlier. We met regularly for three things. To study the word of God, to pray for our non-Christian friends, and to, to work out ways in which we could get those unbelieving friends under the sound of the gospel. That was all we did. The group exemplified a passionate concern to see the gospel spread and our friends trust Christ. Three years in that group profoundly shaped my thinking about what the Christian life is all about. How does a Jonathan become a Clint? By being part of a church that has a passion for the proclamation of God's word and that makes every effort it can to get not yet Christians under the sound of the gospel. By now you'll be getting the idea that changing a Jonathan into a Clint 
is a whole church ministry. So let's turn to my final point, which is partnership. Chapter 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. First this verse and in the following verses, Paul mentions many people. Tychicus, Anisimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus, also called Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, the brothers at Laodicea, Nympha, the church that meets our house, and finally Archippus. These are not just random people. They're brothers and sisters in Christ who are Paul's fellow workers, his partners in the gospel. And we don't know who all of them are, but they probably represent different cultural backgrounds. So this is a, a worldwide partnership. Uh, in Paul's life, they fulfill different roles, but they all share one thing. Paul loves them. He values them. He speaks well of them. Of Tychicus, he says he's a dear brother, a faithful minister. In verse 9, he speaks of Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who's one of you. So he's Paul's partner, but he's also the Colossians' partner. Verse 11, uh, Jesus, who's also called Justice, sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They've proved a comfort to me. And then verse 14, our dear friend Luke, the doctor. And Demas sends greetings. So Paul expresses his love for them, his, his, how much he values them, and he speaks highly of them to others. And that's an important lesson for all of us when we think about our fellow brothers and sisters, that we speak well of them, their brothers and sisters. But see that what roles they face, they, they, they're given. Tychicus is sent to take Paul's news of Paul's situation to the Colossians. He will also be one who encourages Aristarchus, Mark and Justice are a comfort to Paul. And then there's Epaphras, verse 12, we've read of him already. He's one of you, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, he's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. This word wrestling, it's repeated um, back in chapter 1 when Paul talks about his role of teaching and admonishing and preaching the gospel, that that's a struggle to to present people mature in Christ. But the same word is then used of prayer. So Paul and Epaphras are in a partnership. The one's preaching, the one's praying. There's a working together. In verse 17 we find Paul sending a message to Archippus. See to it that you complete the work you've received from the Lord. We can't be sure what his task is. Uh, But in Philemon, the letter to Philemon, Paul describes him as a fellow soldier. It's a phrase that's often used of those who devote themselves to the proclamation of the gospel. So Archippus is possibly continuing Epaphras' work of teaching the Colossians, teaching them the message that that they'd heard that was truly authentic, in which case it was a vital role, one that needed fulfilling. Otherwise, Epaphras' work and Paul's work might have been in vain. Each of us has God-given roles to fulfil, and if we opt out or fail to complete them, then we make life harder for others. We may even prevent them from fulfilling their God-given tasks. I was talking to Peter Comont earlier this week, reflecting on the primary work 
that God's given him to do of teaching and preaching and pastoring this congregation. And he said how appreciative he'd been of all of those who've offered to take up some of Richard Brewster's uh, roles when he leaves so that Peter can continue in his God-given roles. That's real partnership, working together, using our particular gifts, making godly sacrifices of our time and energy so that the body functions as one, working towards the proclamation of Christ to bring unbelievers to him and to bring believers to maturity. Two weeks ago, Richard Brewster made a very helpful point from chapter 3 that the authentic Christian life is lived out in relationship with God's people. And we've seen just the same here. The work of getting the gospel out into the world is not just the job of the preacher. It's a work which involves all of us playing our part. And it's a work that's supremely dependent on the hard work of gospel-focused prayer. So how does a Jonathan become a Clint? How does a young believer become mature in Christ? Well, a few thoughts as I close. Jonathan will become a Clint by joining a church where gospel priorities are both taught and exemplified. When every opportunity to proclaim Christ is taken and prayer for that proclamation is constant. Jonathan will become a Clint by being entrusted with responsibilities. In other words, being allowed to become a partner. He's not always being given to, but he's allowed to become a partner, like Tychicus, given a task by Paul, like Archippus, encouraged to complete a task. Many of us will testify that those points of real spiritual growth in our lives when we've been given a job to do, a job that stretched us, that we've maybe felt slightly uncomfortable doing, but as we've done it, we've discovered God at work, equipping us, enabling us, and so we give thanks to him. Every Clint was once a Jonathan that a wise Christian entrusted with responsibility. Then thirdly, Jonathan becomes a Clint by being welcomed into a loving community where partnership in the gospel is an everyday experience. Where gospel values are lived out, gospel priorities modelled. Every Jonathan needs a context where he, she, can love and be loved where there's an understanding that we only authentically we're only authentically Christian as we help one another to grow in grace Colossians sets before us the sufficiency of Christ Jesus is all we need by the proclamation of his gospel by prayer for his intervention in our world and by partnership with his people, Jonathan will become a Clint. And all of us will grow in our knowledge of his will. We will live lives worthy of the Lord. We will bear fruit in every good work. We will be strengthened by his power. And we will all ultimately become perfect in Christ. Wouldn't you like to be part of a church like that? Well, by trusting in Jesus and by living out these gospel values of prayer, 
proclamation and partnership, we will be a church like that. We will be a church that brings blessing to ourselves and blessing to our community and our world. So let's give ourselves afresh this morning to the God who's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This Jesus is all that we need and he will bring us to maturity. To him be the glory.